Amen. You may be seated. It's so nice to be here with you this evening. Thank you for braving the terrible weather we were supposed to have that's never showed up. To be here, it's great to have you. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles, but we are going to be going through quite a bit of Scripture tonight, so we're going to start where we kind of left off last week, and that is Matthew chapter 10. And I said uh, verses 38 and 39 we'd be talking about both this week and next week. Uh, Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples about living on mission, he says, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And really this is what I will say is part of a four-part message. Uh, There's the message for this evening, so the communion is part of it. The third part of it is going to be happening all of this week, starting on Monday. From 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., every day this week, as long weather permitting, uh, we are going to have what's called Journey to the Cross. And it's different artwork with QR codes that will be set up in the field right here on the walkway that you'll be able to go through. uh, And the goal is for you not just to come and walk through it and spend time uh, prayerfully remembering what Jesus did Uh, on his journey to the cross, but to invite people with you, um, to be able to bring your children and walk them through what it means uh, this week, uh, to be able to see what Jesus accomplished for them and for us, and be able to talk through that. And then part four will be next week's message. So tomorrow is Palm Sunday. And every year since we've started, I remember the first year we started, those of you that were with us, which I believe just includes Liz and Dana and Will in the room currently, about a month before Easter, pastor started asking me, so what are you doing for Easter? Are you going to do Sunday morning for Easter? And I was like, oh, I didn't even think of that. Like, I literally had no idea. So we talked about it, and we prayed about it, and we decided to stay on Saturday evening um, because that's where we had people who just work Sunday mornings, and so, um, but every year, I started getting asked about two or three weeks ago, people who have just started coming to church, so what do we do for Easter? Like, what's Easter Sunday? And so I tell them, well, when we meet Saturday night, it's sunrise in Jerusalem, and so that's the overly spiritual answer we give. No, but it is Palm Sunday, and in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, which I won't uh, be able to read currently, but in there we see the story of Jesus, and he is coming to Jerusalem, and he will ride upon a donkey, uh, fulfilling prophecies, and this, this week that we're going to be celebrating, as you go through the journey on the cross, walking through the amount of prophecies that were, that Jesus fulfilled just during this week alone, let alone his entire life while he was here on earth, is amazing. But Jesus would enter Jerusalem being praised to be the king, and in less than a week he would be crucified as a blaspheming rebel. Still perfect. This evening, I really want you to put yourselves as much as you can of almost being there uh, and what that would be like. And I'll probably be somewhat graphic in explaining it in just a moment, so be ready for that. But I want you to really see how this plays out in front of you. Um, 
knowing now how this week would end for Jesus, but putting your place yourselves at the beginning. Uh, what does Jesus mean when he says to anyone need, who wants to follow me must take up their cross? Uh, what does it mean? He says that multiple times. We're going to be looking at a couple of the passages where Jesus says that to his disciples. He says that to the people following him. Uh, this week I want to look at Jesus' example and what that means to take up your cross. How does he set the example for doing this? And next week will be more, how do we follow that? Uh, Tim Kesey says, Cross-bearing means to fully embrace, identify with, and follow Jesus wherever that will take us and whatever that will cost us. And so I want to paint a picture that would be graphic in what exactly would happen with Jesus. So if he's coming into Jerusalem, let's say Jerusalem's considered up on a hill, so we'll call the stage Jerusalem, and back here the city gates as you would come in. And so as you would start to ride in the city gates in Jerusalem, we think of it as seeing the city that we see on a map, that we would be coming in and there are these walls and there are these gates. But Jerusalem is under Roman reign at this time. And the Romans, especially in this area of Israel and specifically Jerusalem, there were constant rebellious uprisings. You've heard me talk about the one disciple, Simon the Zealot. Well, he was part of the Zealots. There was constant uprising. There was constant what we would now consider terrorist attacks. Uh, and the Romans, in order to uh, instill their rule over people, would want them to know that they were in charge. And this goes far back in history. The Assyrians really invented this. When you think of Jonah going to Nineveh and he was scared and he didn't want to go, it's because the Assyrians started uh, what they called polling people. Uh, and what they would do is they would take a sharp tree and they would put the person uh, straddled and then they would pull down so that the pole would go up their back end and through their stomach, not killing them, and then they would leave them hanging on a pole outside the city gates so that when you would come upon a city, you would know the Assyrians were in charge. And a lot of the torture devices, because you wouldn't die right away, it was a slow, horrible death as you would bleed to death through your stomach and elsewhere that was pierced, they wanted people to know not to mess with them, that they were in charge. And so when now when you think of Jonah going into Nineveh, just think of Nineveh being surrounded, the outside the city walls of people on poles. Every city that they would defeat, this is what they would do. Uh, most of your rulers at that time uh, were very similar. Genghis Khan would do a very similar thing during his reign of making sure people knew they were in charge. Well, the Romans would do the same thing, but the Romans took that act of spiking people uh, and made it worse. They thought they weren't living long enough on these spikes, and so they kind of invented the crucifixion, which is still, they would hang people outside the city walls. Uh, they would do this as a way to warn people that they were in charge. Do not start a rebellion. Do not steal. Do not attack our people, because this is what happens to you. Last week, I talked about the amount of shame that would have been involved with somebody being crucified, that your family would now stop talking about you as if you didn't exist. Nobody, your family didn't come out 
to support you as you were being crucified. They wanted nothing to do with you because they were scared of what would happen to them next. We see that with Jesus when the disciples run. Uh, The people that were there were probably very few when he looks at his mother and Mary and John. There was very few people, and they were at a huge risk going out to see where Jesus was crucified. So now think of Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem, all of these crucifixions that were happening outside. The other thing in history is that they didn't bring people down. When they are given permission, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are given permission to lower Jesus, that was very, very rare, and probably was Pilate knowing and giving permission for them to do so um, apart from normal. So normally they just left your body on the cross. Anyone that cared for you stopped caring for you the moment that you had been sentenced to crucifixion. And also as a warning to people, so when you would come upon it. Now we also think of crucifixion, and sometimes it was done high up in the air, but a lot of times it was actually not very far off the ground. Um, And what they would do is they would strap your feet, somewhat of a mental torture, knowing that if you could just get your foot free, you'd be able to stand on the ground and be able to stand up and be able to breathe. Because the reason you actually died from crucifixion was asphyxiation, as you couldn't breathe. That's why if they thought it was going too long, they would break your knees and you would slowly actually suffocate. So they would also leave you close to the ground for a second reason, and that was because of the amount of blood coming out of you, Uh, or the different things that were happening at night when everybody would leave, the dogs would come out. The wild dogs or animals would come out, and they would start actually eating their flesh while they were still alive, still hanging from a tree. So now, as you've pictured Jesus coming in on a donkey into Jerusalem, the outside of the city gates would have probably been full of people dead or dying on crucifixes. When Jesus comes in and he is proclaimed as king, Hosanna, Hosanna, as he rides into Jerusalem, as he rides through the amount of people. And it is believed that people like Barabbas and other people in history, that there was such an amount of rebellions that Jesus actually, the reason that he was um, crucified on Golgotha, the place of the skull, was there was just no room left on the main roadways into the city because of the amount of people that had been crucified. And so now as he is coming in and he's called Hosanna, Hosanna, but of course Jesus knows how the week will go, that he is riding by that. And he's been telling his disciples repeatedly and those that are following him to pick up your cross. You have to pick up your cross if you're going to follow me. Um, Quite literally as he is walking to the cross, because what would happen when you were sentenced, they would give you the cross beam to carry to the, where you would be crucified. And so, again, there aren't a lot of, because it was wood, there aren't a lot of remnants to know exactly what that would have looked like, how big the piece of crossbeam was. We do know Jesus was beaten so severely that as he's walking, he couldn't carry it. And so as he's carrying it, the Roman guards grab this man named, all we know is Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene would have been in modern-day Libya. Uh, We don't know if it was a Jew that was displaced to Libya or if he was somebody from Libya who had converted to Judaism, who has made his trek back to Jerusalem for Passover. But they grab this man who's there, and Mark tells us he had two sons with him. And they make him carry the cross for Jesus, a literal demonstration of him picking up the cross and bearing the cross. That also would have brought with it an amount of 
Shame to him and his two sons as now their dad, who has traveled from Libya, is now thrust into carrying a cross for another person who is to be crucified. Uh, Philip Keller said, when a man or woman allows his will to be crossed out, canceling the great I in their decisions, then indeed the cross has been applied to that life. This is the meaning of taking up one's cross daily to go to one's own death. No longer my will in the matter, but his will be done. And that's what we see with Jesus is he was doing this in complete obedience to the one who sent him. Uh, as he says, last week we saw the reference where he says, as my Father has sent me, so I send you. And my disciples will take up their cross. When that cross beam went across your shoulders, you knew the end. Nobody escaped crucifixion. When you had the sentencing come down and they placed that, they tied your arms to the cross beam and marched you out to wherever the crucifixion would happen, the ending was written for you. So Jesus is saying that take up, my, take up your cross, my disciples will take up their cross. It means that we are doing this willingly knowing that we are allowing his will to be done and not our own. The first point I want to look at tonight is number one, Jesus knew his mission. Jesus knew his mission. In Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32, Jesus says, or them, sorry, Mark continues, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. And I love the disciples because I feel um, they're very relatable. Jesus is giving them very clearly, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and he does this several times, I'm going to suffer at the hands of man, I'm going to die, I'll be buried for three days, and then I'll rise again. And you can see the disciples like, hmm, that's deep. We're going to see another passage, but what Jesus is explaining is he knows very clearly what is going to happen to him. If you think of Genesis 3, uh, the promise that is made from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve sin, and there is a curse brought down on the serpent. But at the end of Genesis chapter 3, we're told that the serpent, meaning Satan, would bite the heel, meaning the crucifixion, but that he, the Messiah, Jesus, would crush Satan's head. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, he would defeat sin and death. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, the Passover, that Jesus would become that sacrificial lamb that we read about, that he would be the lamb, the pure lamb, whose blood would be shed as a covering for those who believe in him, and that all that, that believe in him will be saved, and they are covered so that when God looks at you and me, and if we believe in him, God sees his son's blood, and we are no longer subjected to that punishment, that eternal punishment. Jesus knew the mission. John 3, 16 through 18, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. 
I think of if you were drowning, and if you're drowning in the ocean, and the lifeguard says, hey, I'm here to help you, and your response is, don't judge me. That's what we see a lot of times with us. That's what we see a lot of times with the people around us. If you've ever gone through lifeguard training or rescue diver training, which I have done neither, they tell you that a lot of times the drowning person will attack you because they're freaking out and they're in shock. And it's a reminder to us that we are surrounded by people who are drowning. That you have been sent on mission as Jesus was sent on mission, not to point out the fact that they're drowning, but to let them know that they can be rescued. It's not up to us, though, to rescue them. It is why Jesus came to draw them to himself. He didn't come, and I love that picture, he didn't come to condemn the world. The world was condemned already. They were already drowning. He came to save them because of his love. Uh, Jesus, uh, David Garland said, Jesus did not come to reward the deserving, but to serve the needy with reckless abandon. Uh, Jesus said repeatedly, he didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick. He came to rescue the sick. Jesus knew the mission. He knew why he was here. Number two, Jesus knew the cost. Jesus knew the cost of the mission. Uh, Luke chapter 14, we're going to see this uh, again. Um, It comes up really quick. Luke 14, starting in verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus knew the cost of the mission. He knew the cost of why he was here on earth. Think of Genesis chapter 4, right after the sin in Genesis 3, there's this little verse that can be overlooked, and it says, so Adam and Eve were covered in shame. They were aware of their nakedness. They were aware of their sin, and they were covered. God, they covered themselves with leaves, But that's not what causes forgiveness. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so God covers them in animal skins, meaning that for the first time in history, innocent animals' blood was shed so that their skins could cover the human's sin. Again, Jesus knew the cost. He knew that blood had to be shed. Uh, Numbers 21, we learn of the bronze serpent. And Again, one of these forgotten, can be forgotten stories in the Old Testament of these snakes, which is a representation of sin, enter the camp of the Israelites, these poisonous, venomous snakes, and they are killing everyone, and there is no cure for the venom. And finally, God tells Moses to raise a bronze serpent up on a pole in the air, and anyone who looks at it 
will be saved. This representation of sin causing death, and the only thing that can save it is when sin is put up on a pole or a cross, and anyone who looks at it and believes in it will be saved. It is the answer. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, we talked about last week, that he left the comfort and privilege of heaven to come and die as a sacrifice. Jesus knew that there was going to be an extreme cost, and it was going to be him, and it was going to be his blood shed. C.H. Spurgeon said, The heart of Christ became like a reservoir in the midst of the mountains. All the tributary streams of iniquity and every drop of the sins of his people ran down and gathered into one vast lake, deep as hell and shoreless as eternity. All these met, as it were, in Christ's heart, and he endured them all. Jesus knew that the cost was going to be taking your sin and my sin and every person's sin upon his shoulders. That he would endure the punishment of all of those sins and take it to the grave. He knew there was an extreme cost to what he was about to do. At number three, Jesus experienced, experienced the temptation to be distracted. Look at Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside. I love this picture of like, ah, uh, Jesus. Let's go. Give me just a quick word. Quick word over here. And began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Jesus, and this should be a huge encouragement to you, He experienced temptation, just like you and I do, to be distracted from the mission. Matthew chapter 4, we see the temptation of Jesus where Satan himself is tempting him. We see just before he is arrested in Matthew 26, 36 through 46, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying three times. He prays, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me. He knew what he was about to endure, and after the third time he walks, he wakes up the disciples and says, wake up, my betrayer is approaching. Jesus' love was constantly on display. When we think of why did Jesus do this, why would Jesus endure all of this, it's because of his intense and personal love for each and every single one of you. You are his creation. He loves you. Ephesians 2 says that in well that you were still sinners. While you were still only ever sinning, Jesus died for you. While I was yet always sinning, Jesus died for me. 
Jesus' love, every time we open up Scripture, we can see Jesus' love is completely on display for you and for me. And anywhere we look today and anytime we spend time in His Word, we should continue to see that His love is constantly on display. It's that unbelievably intense and personal love. That's what drove His obedience to the mission. It's that intense and personal love is what should be drawing our hearts to Him. It's that reminder of always preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. And next week we'll talk about that it's what should draw us to love others as Jesus loved us. John Owen said, We are never near Christ than when we find ourselves lost in a holy amazement at His unspeakable love. And I'll close with this, one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. He loved us not because we are lovable, but because he is love. His love was constantly on display. His love is still constantly on display for how much he loved us. I really want to invite and encourage you to come through the journey to the cross this week. Invite people to walk through with them. Bring your children to walk through and be able to explain what it is, why we celebrate this week. Lord, I thank you for our time together. Lord, I thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son for us. Lord, I pray that we would just be overwhelmed with Jesus' love in our lives to the point where we can't stop telling others about it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.